Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're uncovering the real causes of inflammation and what you can do to reverse and resolve it, perhaps even forever. We'll be covering what the inflammatory process actually is, the real causes of inflammation in the body, the conventional medical approach to treating inflammation, why inflammation needs to be addressed for long-term health and well-being, the foods that promote inflammation in the body, and what we can do to reverse and prevent inflammation for life. everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another fun and information-filled episode. I'm Megan Telpner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Joining me as always is Josh Catalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Inflammation is one of the most common problems challenging our health at an epidemic level. It is a contributing factor to and part of nearly every disease process in the body. Inflammation can affect everything from our joints and connective tissue to our digestive tract to our brain. Where it seems that addressing the myriad of health issues can feel overwhelming, the reality is that if we can address the root cause and resolve inflammation in the body, we may find that secondary health concerns actually resolve themselves as well. You don't say. You do. Now, we first have to establish what inflammation is because I think there's a lot of misconception around inflammation. Okay, Josh. So inflammation is not just painful swelling of the outer extremities of the body? Well, that's the result of inflammation. So we first want to appreciate that inflammation is actually a good thing. It's the appropriate response of our immune system to a possible threat. Now, what happens is when there's damage to a tissue, when there's exposure to a pathogen or a chemical or a number of other things that we're going to talk about, the immune system's responsibility is to amount a response to it, to determine what is friend and what is foe, what is right and what is wrong in the body. And if something is threatening the body or is wrong, then it sends a whole bunch of chemical mediators to the area or sometimes systemically to deal with that issue. So when you, at a very superficial level, bump your arm and then it gets hot and red and swollen, it's because the body is sending blood and everything blood carries to that area in an attempt to heal it. Yeah, an attempt to transport all those powerful chemical messengers to start the process of healing, exactly. So we don't want to shut that down. So when someone has chronic inflammation, or I, I just remembered this, the biopsy when I was dealing with Crohn's said that what I was dealing with in my small intestine was chronic active inflammation. What does that actually mean? Well, just like the analogy you just used, where if you bump your arm, something is constantly bumping into whatever tissue we're talking about. So I think most people can appreciate if someone kept on bumping into your arm or punching you in the shoulder, that inflammation would not go away ever until they stopped doing that. 
And most of what we see in chronic degenerative diseases is this chronic inflammation where whatever the root cause of that inflammation continues to create that injury or that harm or that threat on the body. And so the body continuously mounts an inflammatory response, which then contributes to secondary degenerative conditions. Exactly. So we have to look upstream here. Before we get into the real cause, perhaps we should discuss how conventional medicine approaches inflammation. Right. Well, going back to banging your arm, if we're looking at the conventional medicine model, we would say, oh, that arm is not really getting better. Let's load you up on anti-inflammatories and painkillers. But go ahead and keep bumping your arm. Go ahead and keep bumping your arm. Exactly. So they're looking at how to deal with the result of the injury. How do we address the inflammation, not what is causing the inflammation? So they'll look at medications for symptom suppression. So to maybe bring down that inflammation, even if the cause remains there. Immune suppression in some cases. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? For sure. Well, firstly, just to touch on your first point there, I think the most commonly used drug are painkillers. Right. Right? Non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, also known as NSAIDs as a short form. These are pretty effective. I think everyone's had the experience where they've used it to decrease inflammation or decrease pain. And they actually happen to be one of the leading causes of liver damage and liver failure and hospital admission in developed countries. But that's a discussion for another day. So they can be quite harmful in high doses. And so what the NSAIDs are doing, the painkillers, is not actually addressing inflammation at all. They're just blocking the messengers that would go to your brain to tell you that something hurts. Correct. But they're not actually doing anything to get rid of the pain, just your sensation of feeling it, which can be really, really powerful and essential in certain situations, but not something you'd want to be using ongoing, long-term, indefinitely. Right. And I think we can appreciate here that there is a time and a place for everything, right? Yes. Uh, For every drug, for every treatment, for every surgery. So with painkilling, There's stronger drugs after the NSAIDs. There's prescription drugs that deal with even stronger responses to inflammation. And then there's even drugs that suppress the immune system. So this often occurs when people are dealing with autoimmune conditions and that immune stimulation process that's causing that inflammation has gone out of control and so bad that it's actually causing serious damage to certain tissues. So say someone has rheumatoid arthritis, their immune system is attacking their own joints. Now, they're probably going to be prescribed painkillers to deal with some of the immediate acute symptoms of joint pain. But if they really want to try to control the disease over the long term, they usually look at using some immunosuppressive drugs like steroids, like biologics, and like a number of other very, very powerful, strong drugs that unfortunately have side effects because you can't just suppress one part of the immune system without suppressing the other part that might protect us from flus and infections and bacteria and whatnot. We talk a lot about autoimmune in episode four of the Today's Day podcast, Can You Cure an Autoimmune Disease? So to really understand the triggers and the autoimmune process, please listen to that episode and then you can come back here and continue listening here. But let's talk then. So if we are looking at the conventional medical approach is really symptom treatment, getting rid of the pain, getting rid of the swelling or suppressing the immune system. So the swelling stops happening, but we're not actually addressing what is causing it in the first place. I think we need to look at what those triggers actually are. So what is causing inflammation in the body? Well, 
pretty much everything we talk about or ask that you avoid, which is goes back to our first episode of season two on the big decisions we make, which include eliminating things like gluten and dairy, both of which promote inflammation in the body by different mechanisms for different people, but they're definitely not anti-inflammatory foods. No, they're not, especially when they're sourced poorly. So I, I'd like to just throw in there that there are some good sources of dairy yes. that may not be inflammatory, but also with the caveat that for some people, it doesn't matter how good the dairy is, it's going to be inflammatory for them based on their genetic makeup and biochemical individuality. And for others, there's they're going to be able to consume certain dairy that's fine for them. Or in small quantities, moderately spaced out. Correct. But when it comes to gluten, that's 100% avoidance for everyone with what we know today. With what we know today. So if you are dealing with a condition of inflammation, ditch them. When in doubt, get them out and see what happens. Before we even get into an inflammatory response in the body, it's often actually the result or can be contributed to by dysbiosis in the gut or an imbalance in gut microflora. When we have this microflora imbalance, it can actually cause us to crave more sugar. And so sugar can actually directly, for this reason, contribute to a promotion of inflammation in the body. Right, because then it goes back and feeds the bad guys. It goes, the sugar's feeding the bad guys, and then the bad guys are becoming imbalanced. It becomes a cycle. It becomes a cycle. It can increase leaky gut. It can then increase the response in the body from the immune system to battle off any what it perceives as foreign invaders, and then you have an inflammatory cascade in the body. One of the strongest promoters of the, the inflammatory response are these chemicals or what we call endotoxins that come from the gut called lipopolysaccharides. And they're actually the membrane around these bacteria that can get into the bloodstream through a leaky gut and the immune system just freaks out when it sees these things. So endotoxins are things that are made in the body by the bacteria, just by a process of digestion and living. Correct. Now, everyone has about five grams of this stuff in their gut at any one given time, but it's when that gut gets damaged and destroyed and leaky, that it becomes a problem. So to contribute to that imbalance, why don't we throw a couple martinis, a beer, and a bottle of wine in the mix, and then we have just a raging party of endotoxin production. Not a good situation. Not a good situation. So foods that promote inflammation in the body, definitely gluten, sugar, alcohol, dairy is possibly a contributor, specifically processed dairy, you know, like the the 2% conventional milk you'll find in the supermarket, that kind of stuff. And then there can also, on top of that, be person-specific or individual food sensitivities that can cause the body to mount an immune response if you're reacting to these specific foods. Right. And we have different antibody responses. We have IgG, IgE, IgA, And different ones will occur with different foods in different situations, but they're all immune related. So when we're sensitive to a food, we amount one of these immune responses, we put an antibody on that item and we tell the immune system, whenever you see that again, go and attack and that causes a possible state of chronic inflammation. Now, I think what we're alluding to here, Megan. Yes, Josh. Is a diet called the standard American diet. Yes, Josh. Which sets people up to be chronically inflamed. And how does that actually translate? Well, we set the body up and then we're going to feel it in the weakest 
link. Right. So if it's your joints, your joints are going to hurt. If it's your nervous system, you might have emotional consequences from that, like depression or anxiety can be caused by inflammation. If your cardiovascular system is more susceptible, which it is for most of the American population or developed country populations, you're going to get cardiovascular disease. And it's not just the foods. It's also stress. So there's a direct link between the gut and the brain and a direct link between our physiology and the thoughts we have. And so stressful thoughts or a stressful lifestyle or an inability to effectively process our stress out of the body could also trigger an inflammatory response in the body. Yeah, and this has definitely been shown in the research many, many times over. There's one study that I present when I talk about inflammatory bowel disease in one of my classes, showing that when people with inflammatory bowel disease have gone, undergone a stressful event, it greatly increases the disease activity. Right. And this was, again, done in a placebo-controlled double-blind study looking at two groups of people who, you know, one group might be experiencing more stress and the other one not experiencing much stress at all. And another common trigger is toxicity, whether it's an external obvious stress like pollution, personal care products, chemicals and personal care products, pesticides on our foods. There's those kinds of toxicities. There's toxicities from medications, from different types of injections. So it's important to recognize that there is the food dietary component, there's the stress and lifestyle component, and there's the environmental component. All of this might sound a little bit familiar to you from the autoimmune episode and the contributing factors to autoimmune conditions. Yeah. And, you know, just tying it together with the toxins is, again, our immune system is supposed to be able to differentiate between friend and foe. Right. Hey, this is a Megan cell. I'm not going to attack it because she needs it to pump her heart. Oh, no. This is mercury. We got to attack that. And these are sometimes called autogens, where the body is, again, creating an immune response to these foreign materials. So when we get exposed to them from any number of places, as you mentioned just a moment ago, we constantly are stimulating the immune system to be on guard, to be weary of its environment. Can you talk a little bit about inflammatory conditions, which this might seem obvious, but I think that a lot of people deal with health conditions and they're listening being like, well, I don't have swollen joints. I don't have body pain. I don't have a red bump from bumping my arm. What are some of the health conditions or most common, most common health conditions you see in your clinic that have inflammation as a part of it, but that may be surprising to people? Well, anything that ends in itis. Right means inflammation of. So arthritis is inflammation of the joints. Colitis is inflammation of the colon. Bronchitis is inflammation of the bronchioles. Conjunctivitis is inflammation of the white parts of your eyes. Pink eye. Pink eye. Pink eye. So that, that's just medicine's way of identifying something that's an inflammation. But we always have to ask the question, what is causing that inflammation? Is it, inflammation doesn't just happen from nowhere. Fire doesn't happen from nowhere. Fire wasn't first discovered by a plant spontaneously combusting in the woods. It came from lightning. Mm-hmm. And then caveman or cavewoman <laughs> came along and said, hey, look, fire. 
so it's the same in the body when that fire happens, that inflammation, it's always coming from somewhere and we have to look upstream to figure out what it is. Now, sometimes it's multiple things and it's a bit difficult to find the exact thing. And what we've been talking about since first episode of season one and learning about since we started this is that it's all holistic. It's all holistic, but there's also conditions that we may not even associate that aren't necessarily itises. Or if we look at, say, autism, which can be triggered by a swelling of the brain, encephalitis, we don't often hear about that connection. Or there's diabetes. Inflammation is involved with diabetes. Inflammation is connected. There's some studies that associate Alzheimer's with inflammation in the brain. So there can be all different kinds of conditions. And most often in a lot of health challenges, inflammation will play a part. And so looking at how we can reverse inflammation or live an anti-inflammatory lifestyle can be really powerful for everyone. And that's what it's all about. It's a lot of stuff that we've already spoken about in detail in many of our podcasts. But it's something that I explain to my clients like this. It's about removing the sliver. You know, if you get a sliver and you don't take it out, it's going to continue hurting. You can put a Band-Aid on it. You can take painkillers. You can take anti-inflammatories. You can even suppress the immune system. You can even get rid of all the trees and all the wood <laughs> on the planet. But... You, you don't take out the sliver. Get sliver out. So you got to take the sliver out to allow that healing to actually happen. And that's what I mean by the root cause. We need to heal the gut and we need to support immune function. I mean, these are key foundational items when we're dealing with chronic inflammation. I think that healing the gut and supporting immune function are part of every therapeutic protocol in integrative or functional health. And if you're working with a practitioner and they tell you you have a condition of inflammation and don't address the immune system or the gut, I'd be concerned. Absolutely. So with all of these secondary conditions, can you talk about like what is inflammation? We talked about the bump. We talked about the messengers. We talked about the swelling. We talked about the chronic inflammation if we don't remove the thing that's causing it. What is the actual inflammatory process? So all of the things that we, we've mentioned, like the pathogens and the toxins and even damaged tissue, like from working out, for example, or from our tissue being damaged from some of these other things, they float around the bloodstream and they end up making contact with the receptor of our immune cells. They're called toll-like receptors. And then those send a message to the DNA to make these inflammatory compounds like tumor necrosis factor. Oh, throwing down the lingo. Doesn't sound so good. And certain interleukins that are pro-inflammatory. And these are actually associated with the inflammation, right? Like you can measure these in the blood. And when you see them high, you know that inflammation's happening. And some of the drugs that are used to bring down inflammation and to control diseases associated with inflammation suppress these chemicals that, again, are at the end stream right? End of the stream. Are they testing? When you go to a standard Western doctor, are they testing for these inflammatory compounds in the body? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, no. It depends right. who you're seeing. It depends if you've been referred to a specialist. Right. You know, there's some really basic testing like C-reactive protein, which can tell us if inflammation is happening, but is very nonspecific. Doesn't tell us where it's happening or to what magnitude it's really happening. But there's a lot of other chemicals other than that one. Interesting. Okay, go on. 
we have to find out what's causing these messages. We have to get to the toxins. We have to get to the pathogens. We have to get to the foods that are doing all this. And again, that's going back to what I call the sliver. Right. So we want to remove the sliver, all those things we talked about, to prevent this process from even starting. So if someone has, let's say, a gluten sensitivity and they eat, say, a cracker or have a beer, would it be fair to say that that alone could be enough to cause this inflammatory cascade that would then target whatever the weakest link is in their body? For sure. And that's what a lot of people are going through. They're having that cracker and they're having that beer and they're waking up the next morning and feeling joint pain and saying, I got to take my anti-inflammatory to suppress this pain. What could be causing my pain? Right. Or there's often an assumption, we talked about this in the gluten episode, that a little bit may only cause a little reaction, which in some cases could be true. It could just be a dose response. If you keep putting that sliver in, whether it's a little sliver or a big sliver, it's still a sliver. Like the tack. Give the tack analogy. So if you're sitting on two tacks, it's going to be pretty painful. And if you take out one, it doesn't decrease the pain by 50%. You're still sitting on a tack. You're still sitting on a tack and in serious pain. So looking at all these things is, is removing those layers. And when someone is living the life of even consuming a little bit of this or a little bit of that, or being exposed to this pathogen or this toxin at small amounts, and they're constantly trying to suppress the symptoms that are downstream effects of that, the dysfunction goes deeper and deeper and deeper and eventually turns into disease. So at first we might be making some inflammatory chemicals, but when that happens over and over, we're getting more damage and more damage, and then we can't repair quick enough, and that's resulting in deformity of whatever organ or tissue we're talking about. So in order to permanently resolve and reverse inflammation, it's not about a four-week cleanse, an eight-week cleanse. This is a lifestyle. If one of those things is your sliver, it needs to be out 100%, 100% of the time. We're going to take a quick break here so you can meet an inspiring culinary nutrition expert. Though the majority of our students tend to be based in North America, over the years, our reach has extended around the globe. We now celebrate certified culinary nutrition experts in over 30 countries. And Shiru is one of a small handful of graduates based in Kenya. And her business, My Planted Kitchen, has taken off. Here is Shiru to tell you more. Hi, my name is Wanjiro Masharia, popularly known as Shiro, and I'm from Nairobi, Kenya. I graduated from the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program in 2017. I am an author of a clean eating cookbook, My Planted Kitchen, with over 70 delicious clean eating recipes. And I'm the founder of My Planted Kitchen, which is an online platform with a community of over 16,000 people where I share inspiration on clean eating, clean living, clean beauty. That platform has also given me the opportunity to work one-on-one with people to help them lose weight, get healthier while still enjoying what they're eating. I had so many questions after I lost an incredible amount of weight in 2017 on how exactly do you, you know, live a healthier lifestyle and eat well without feeling deprived and 
when I joined the culinary nutrition expert program that I got my answers on that question and so much more. It set me off on a path to question what is our food industry looking like and helping people here in Kenya question (laughs) the same way, being mindful about what they're eating, what they're putting on their skin, about our environment. And I'm so glad I'm part of that bigger cause and really chatting the way in this region. So thank you so much, Megan, and your team for that inspiration and that knowledge. And I'm so excited what the future holds. You can learn more about Shiru and the work she does at myplantedkitchen.com. Shiru also happens to be an Academy of Culinary Nutrition certified instructor offering classes in Nairobi, Kenya. Links to Shiru's website are over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just click on this episode for all the goods plus some extra episode bonus material. Though it may feel like you're the only one in your community who has an interest in health and nutrition, that might actually be an amazing opportunity to lead the way as Shiro has done in Nairobi. Becoming a certified culinary nutrition expert also means you have the option to join our extended team as an instructor and be ready and set upon graduating to start offering your own classes and workshops wherever you may live in the world. We provide all of the teaching materials to make that happen quickly. If you want to learn more about becoming an Academy of Culinary Nutrition certified instructor this year, head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash instructor to learn more. Now let's return to our conversation. Can someone permanently heal or resolve inflammation? Can everybody do that? Well, we actually wouldn't want that. What we want to permanently resolve is chronic inflammation. Right. Acute inflammation is great. Yes. You know, that I go to the to gym. Heal. Yeah, I go to the gym on a regular basis. I damage my muscle. I create an inflammatory process. And because of that, it grows back, repairs itself, and go- comes back stronger. And then um, I can go back to the gym. I would say minor damage. You're not doing extreme damage to your muscles that causing permanent injury. Right. Because you can work out too hard and, yes. and cause permanent injury. Or cause chronic inflammation. Right. So the acute inflammatory process, which resolves, and resolves an interesting word because there's actually chemicals in the body called resolvins that help with resolving that inflammatory process, is healthy. It's normal. It's the proper response for the immune system. It's when that happens chronically. It's like Chernobyl, right? Okay. You know, Chernobyl was one big event many years ago, but it continues to actually still be a problem because that reactor is still burning up. It's still hot and still creating radiation. So it constantly has to be treated. And I think they just built another structure around it recently. Well, Russia would like us to think otherwise. (laughs) But So what I'm hearing you say, and I think this is an important thing to highlight, is that even if someone doesn't have a sort of, quote, chronic inflammatory condition, anyone who lives an active lifestyle would benefit from an anti-inflammatory diet and lifestyle simply by the benefits of being able to heal and recover faster from the exertion of everyday life and regular activity and everyday exercise and, and just living in this world. For sure. And what would that look like? exactly what we're talking about. It would look like the undiet lifestyle. It would look like what you teach through functional nutrition, what we teach here at the school from culinary nutrition. It's just eating and living in a way that supports optimal health. And we have an opportunity three times a day, typically for most people, to either choose 
an anti-inflammatory combination of foods or a pro-inflammatory combination of foods. And I say that in that particular way because there's actually been studies done that show that eating one pro-inflammatory meal can greatly increase inflammation over the next five hours. And if you guys want, by the way, if you go to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast, we have a link to a anti-inflammatory diet and lifestyle guide just for you. Let's talk about some of the anti-inflammatory foods. Well, the first one's not really a food, but it's maybe the most obvious and most essential, which is water. So good, clean drinking water, optimally not municipal tap water. Um, but you want water for the very basic function it serves of helping helping cleanse your body. So it can help to rinse, wash out, eliminate these circulating inflammatory compounds, get rid of waste product from the body that can actually exacerbate conditions of inflammation. It will support optimal digestion and elimination and all of those factors that are very, very important for reducing, eliminating, and healing inflammation and generally healing for the body. Absolutely. Water. We are mostly water. We are mostly water. Right. Do you know men have more water in their body than women? I didn't. Yeah. Why? Do I think know because why? there's more muscle. But does the... Yeah. That makes sense. Wait, fat has less water in it? I guess it has more fat in it. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save this discussion. Fa- fact check us. <laughs> fact check us. Uh, what else, Josh? What's another great healing food that we love? Well, let's just start building the plate. Let's start building the plate like, slash planting the garden. Yeah. Dark leafy greens. Yes. I mean, those are powerhouses. They're filled and loaded with antioxidants yep. that help to bring down inflammation once it's occurred. They help protect the body. They've got things like magnesium. You, you know, whenever you see green, think magnesium. It's also very rich in beta carotene, a precursor to, well, it turns into vitamin A in the body, which is vital for wound healing. I love a good kale salad. I know it's such a sort of stereotypical nutritionist food, but listen, guys, you take your kale, chop it up, give it a gentle massage with some lemon juice, olive oil, sea salt, and you've just now softened your raw kale to make it actually palatable. No one wants a kale salad with big, chunky, hard leaves. So massage it up a little bit and then put on a creamy dressing. And I've got a few in the End Diet Cookbook, but even just blending some tahini, tamari, lemon juice, flax oil, and a little bit of garlic, that makes an amazing, rich, Mm -hmm. creamy dressing. That that sounds delicious. We put it on everything. So get those dark leafy greens in. And I said planting the garden because I'm looking at this list and this is basically everything, almost everything we plant in our summer garden. The next we have winter squashes. Those are things like butternut squash, acorn squash. No, not a patty pan. I think patty pan is summer squash. A what? A patty pan. What's a patty pan? Those are the squashes that look like a regular squash that someone sat on the top and it just squished out and became sort of flatter. What was that squash you recently bought? A kabocha? A kabocha. Oh, I love kabocha squash. But these are nice sometimes because they help give you that vegetable that you might have eliminated due to inflammation, like some of the nightshades, like potatoes, right? And these kind of give you a little bit of that texture, that flavor, that hardiness on a plate where it would have been missing from taking out those inflammatory foods. We didn't mention the nightshades, Josh. We almost missed it. Here we are. Let's talk about nightshades for a moment. So instead of nightshades, eat squashes. What are nightshades? Potatoes, eggplant, tomato, 
capsicum, peppers, incidentally, goji berries, tobacco also fall into that category, but they contain a phytochemical, a plant chemical called solanine, which in some individuals can promote inflammation. And so if you are trying to reduce your inflammation, getting rid of the nightshade family of vegetables would probably be a helpful step. Mm -hmm. And you can experiment with that if you're unsure. You usually know within about a month if you're sensitive to those or not. When in doubt, get it out, as I will say once again. So with the winter squash, they're loaded with immune-supportive vitamins A and C. And I like to eat them like you take a butternut squash, first peel it. So people try and cut their giant butternut squash in half and then dig out the hard inside. I love to peel my squash first, and then it's really easy to work with. Slice it up into one-inch cubes, toss with a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of avocado oil or ghee or another heat-stable oil, and a little bit of maple syrup, pinch of sea salt, toss that all together. You can roast that at 350 for about 35 to 40 minutes. It's honestly as good as dessert eventually love, when you're when you're used to eating healthy desserts <laughs> i love all these culinary tips you're giving us today it's like a cooking audio cooking class it's an audio cooking demonstration now as i was mentioning before that there's these messengers in your bloodstream that turn on inflammation from all of these foods that we're talking about there's very strong uh, chemicals that turn off inflammation as well and create these anti-inflammatory compounds and resolvents. A powerhouse group for those are the cruciferous vegetables. Cruciferous includes broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, mustard greens, bok choy. What did I miss? Watercress. Watercress. Yeah, there's a there's a whole bunch of vegetables that fall into that category. And these actually are vegetables, squashes, fruits. Yeah. Do you have a favorite way to prepare one of these? You give us the audio cooking lesson. Well, you know, I love Brussels sprouts. Yes, you do. Yeah. I mean, those are just one of my favorite things to eat at a restaurant as a side dish because <laughs> usually they're doing them really well. You make a delicious Brussels sprout, Josh. Yeah. They can be made at home pretty easily as well. You chop them up into two pieces. You kind of take that little bum off of it. That's <laughs> not, not really edible. You cut it up in, in half toss it in a little, you know, avocado oil or ghee or whatever your hot oil of choice is, a little sea salt, let those few little leaves that flake off just be because those become little crunchy bits that are so delicious and bake it at uh, about 400 for I think 30 minutes should probably do it. And the key thing here is to give them lots of space. Yeah. Space Brussels sprouts are introverts. They don't like hanging out with others too close. And when you give them the space they need, they become nice and crispy and delicious. I've, followed, I've always had a kinship for Brussels sprouts now. I know why. Cauliflower is also really nice to just toss a little bit of turmeric and some minced garlic and then toss that in an oil and you can bake that. Again, it, I always I bake everything at 350 because then you can put everything in the oven together. So again, around 30 minutes. So all of these can be made so deliciously. And if you do your meal prep ahead of time, when it actually comes to cooking them, you're literally just tossing them in whatever you want to season them with and you're putting them right in the oven. So it can be one of those set it and forget it easy ways to incorporate some of these anti-inflammatory foods. The next group is the allium family. Onions, garlic, leeks, shallots, chives, all of those contain these sulfur compounds and other molecules that help avert inflammation. Well, we know that onions are also really high in quercetin 
And quercetin is actually an antihistamine. A histamine is a chemical that our immune system makes as one of those mediators. So load up on the onions too to, to decrease your histamine levels, which can promote inflammation. One of my favorite anti-inflammatory foods is fresh berries. Can't get enough. When they're in season, buy them by the flat. Know someone, meet someone, get them by the flat. And if you're able to and have the room to either process them in some way, and a really simple thing to do is just blend them up and freeze them in ice cube trays so you can pop them into smoothies throughout the year. Or if you have the space to actually freeze them so you can you have access to those to make things with make we make our own jams we make all kinds of things with fresh berries so those are really really high in antioxidants which are protective they help protect basically all the tissues linings of the body now the food group that i think gets the most attention when it comes to anti-inflammatory is fish yes Fish are loaded with omega-3 fatty acids. Depending on the fish, you're going to get different amounts. Sardines tend to be really high. Fatty salmon tends to be really high in these omega-3s. And why they're so powerful is because these omega-3s convert in the body to what are called prostaglandins, which again are the precursors to our anti-inflammatory chemicals in the body that help to bring down inflammation. If you're wondering... But isn't fish high in mercury and other stuff from the oceans? Some are. We have a guide for you. So if you go to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast, you'll find a link to a post I wrote on how to buy fish and what fishes, what fishes, fishes is not a word, what fish to choose, uh, what to ask when you are shopping for fish. The last one we're going to chat about are nuts and seeds. These are a wonderful plant-based option for your doses of omega-3s and omega-6s in the optimal ratio for anti-inflammatory benefit, specifically like hemp seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds, and walnuts. Bonus, they're high in protein like the fish, which is really helpful in tissue healing and wound repair. Yeah, so we get the omega-3s and omega-6s from these seeds, and the omega-6s go down another pathway, which can go either pro or anti-inflammatory, but the anti-inflammatory pathway is quite potent as well. They make the prostaglandin-1 series anti-inflammatory, so it's not just important to get your omega-3s, which have a powerful anti-inflammatory effect, but also the omega-6s to some extent as well. But the source of those omega-6s is really, really important. You don't want to be getting them from pro-inflammatory oils like sunflower, safflower, canola, these foods that are sort of promoted and highlighted as being polyunsaturated, but they're really high in omega-6 in a denatured form because you're usually high heat processed, which omega-6s typically should not be. So if they were raw and unprocessed and used in smaller amounts, they'd probably be okay for most people. We cannot complete an episode on anti-inflammatory or inflammation without talking about one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory compounds from nature, and that is curcumin, which comes from our favorite herb, turmeric. Turmeric acts on so many different pathways through the inflammatory process. So when we're looking at different drugs, they're always trying to suppress and address one particular pathway, oftentimes with other side effects, because you can't actually do that. But that's what they're looking to do. So for example, we've got sulfasalazine, which is often used in people with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which blocks phospholipase A2. And also turmeric does the same thing there. It also blocks that pathway to not the same extent, but it'll do that. 
But turmeric also blocks other enzymes, which um, convert lipooxygenase and cyclooxygenase to their stronger metabolites downstream, which other drugs do also, but it's doing it on many different levels. It's doing it in a more of a way that it's massaging the immune system and inflammatory process rather than bullying it, which is what drugs often do. And with turmeric, there's at least 50 different mechanisms that we know of where it does decrease inflammation. Some other herbs that are great at doing this are ginger. I love ginger. You do love ginger. We've spoken about it in previous podcasts. White willow bark, quercetin, as we talked about, in food form from onions, but also you can get it in supplement form. Bromelain or proteolytic enzymes on an empty stomach. Wait a minute, Josh. Also where, does, where does bromelain come from? That comes from pineapple. Pineapple. But you know, if you're dealing with a serious inflammatory condition, you need to take it in supplement form to get a really powerful therapeutic effect. But you should be working with a functional medicine practitioner to know what that therapeutic amount should be. Absolutely. Now, those are our top ones, but there's lots of other herbs out there that help to decrease inflammation. You know what I love about everything that we've said, aside from the fact that it's brilliant, just kidding, sort of, <laughs> maybe not, but all of the foods we're recommending and all of nature and natural foods doesn't just have one specific benefit. Like you talked about the 50 mechanisms that turmeric can have in the body. All of these foods have a myriad of synergistic benefit that all work towards promoting health unless you have a specific individual allergy or sensitivity, in which case you wouldn't eat one of these foods we've mentioned. But otherwise, they have such a dramatic, big health benefit that you know, the more of this good stuff you add in, the more of the not so good stuff will naturally fall away. And then the, you know, the extra amount you do have to make that effort to avoid and eliminate and really shift into this delicious and not so complicated anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Really then, when we look at our body and we are in a state of chronic inflammation, it's a sign that we've missed a number of things upstream from this, everything that we've spoken about today. So it's just a sign. It's, it's your body crying out for help and telling you in the language of symptom that you have to make some changes here. So sometimes we need to take medications, anti-inflammatories in the short term to manage pain, to function from day to day. But we want to constantly approach this with trying to find out and asking the questions of what's upstream from this. Where is the sliver that I need to take out? Often inflammation is that first warning sign. So let's not suppress it. It's like the engine light going on in your car. Don't just hammer it out with a sledgehammer. Look under the hood and see what's going on. And it could help prevent and resolve a lifetime of health challenges. Absolutely. I think that's a wrap on our inflammatory conversation. Thank you guys so much for joining us. But wait, there's more. We have loads of resources, all of the links, and a helpful anti-inflammatory guide ready for you. Head on over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast to access the additional information. If you're feeling inspired and want more, consider joining us for the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. Registration opens in April and space is limited. Learn more at culinarynutrition.com or check out the free training I created just for you at culinarynutrition.com forward slash free training. If you get on our mailing list, you'll receive a regular dose of culinary nutrition in your inbox, including exclusive access to bonus resources and recipes. 
Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you again next time. Have a great day.